G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. And I'm Charlie Clawson. We are two dads who, when we found out we were going to be dads, went looking for a podcast that could help us navigate what it means to be a dad in the modern world. I mean, there were parenting podcasts, but they all seemed to be aimed at mums, or at the very least, mums and dads. Yeah, there were no podcasts for dads specifically, and certainly not dads who want to be hands-on and do their share of raising their children. So, we started Dad Pod. A podcast by dads, for dads who don't want to be shit dads. <laughs> Each week we share our own stories from the good and the bad to the thermonuclear tantrums, as well as talk with some of the biggest experts in the field to help all of us become better dads. So if you're a dad, a mum dad, or a dad to be, search Dad Pod where you get your podcasts. The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and my guest this week is the Sultan of Cinema. He's the pharaoh of the flicks. He, of course, is Guy Davis, a film expert extraordinaire, returning to Fofop. Oh, I can't even speak. Return- <laughs> what oh. podcast am I doing? Returning to Fofop. <laughs> returning to Fofop. Uh, Guy, how you going? I am well, Charlie. Look, it's Friday afternoon as we record this. A little bit of stumbling is, of course, par for the course, shall we say. Well, but uh, I, very, I, I, very good to be here again. I, I, I'm, I've changed my diet uh, in the last few days and I've, I've sort of oh. thought I'll give dairy a bit of a break for a while. So I've been having my coffee with like macadamia milk and I don't know if there's something about dairy where it takes the edge off caffeine, but I feel like I'm in that movie spun, like that I'm on really hard speed. <laughs> like I'm sweating, <laughs> my brain's scattered, I can't quite think and it's all off one cup of coffee like three hours ago. Holy moly, man. Well, you're holding it together well so far, but we'll we'll see how we travel over the next uh, hour or so, because I think this is a topic that uh, we can probably hold forth on for some time. Yeah, well, this is a rare example of... Uh, oh, so it's the video store. A guy always comes on to, for the video store episode of, of Fofop. I'm going to do it. I did it again. Uh, and he normally always brings the great ideas, but I had an idea for, for a subject, which I thought, uh, mm. let's talk about our favourite sleazeball actors, as in not real-life sleazeballs, <laughs> as in typecast as sleazeball actors. Um, mm. Now, it's sort of fairly appropriate that I'm incredibly sweaty and speaking really fast. <laughs> because there is, you know, I think there's there's two school of thoughts when it comes to the sleazeball. There's those kind of... Um, uh, actors who do sleazeball really well and then there's the other actors who are just have an innate quality of uh, that, that that is kind of off-putting now mm. there's a lot of actors and actresses that you know we we kind of talked about and thought about throwing into the mix i've got some honorable mentions and 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 then we can get into our, our list proper now i thought i'd start with um not really uh, like a, a great sleazeball actor but probably the greatest sleazebag role of all time which is Hart Bochner or Bochner, Hart Bochner in uh, Ellis, of course, in Die Hard, which is probably like the quintessential cinematic sleazebag. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, just pure cokehead <laughs> pinstripe yuppie. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a really, really marvellous performance because, I mean, you look at Bochner and you think, oh, that's a handsome-looking dude. You know, he should traditionally be a leading man type or something like that, and he just slid so easily into the skin of this um, polar opposite of John, oh, John McClane in Die Hard. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think a phrase that I'm probably going to use maybe way too often during this podcast is they really just made a fucking meal out of it. <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. I think, uh, think Hardbockner saw Harry Ellison just goes, oh, I can have some fun with this. And he really does just um, all uh, everything he does from – the way he carries himself, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's sort of, he's a big guy, but he's sort of slouching. Mm. You know, he's, uh, it's he's big, he feels like it, he's sort of. It's big yeah. dick energy. He's got that big dick energy. That's what. That's he doesn't feel like he there. needs to try. Yeah. <laughs> even though he really probably does. But I mean, of course, everyone knows. It's just the pi- the pivotal Ellis moment when yeah. he's trying to negotiate with Helen, Alan Rickman. Hans. He thinks he's got the upper hand. Will be. He just does the little <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
It's so great. It's so great. Um, um, Hart Bochner, he never really sort of had the career that you would think someone who acts well and looks like he does actually did. He moved behind the camera for a bit. And um, he's, a, he's the co-star of one of my favorite unsung movies. It's a, a thriller. Came, I think it came out roughly the same time as Die Hard called Apartment Zero. And it's basically a two-hander set in Argentina. And it's him and a very young Colin Firth. Mm. And... Um, Got to put on my pretentious hat. Do you know the Ingmar Bergman movie Persona? No. Okay. Uh, two people and it sort of have a, a, what you think is an uneven power relationship. One is a um, a movie star and one is the nurse who's sort of looking after this mentally fragile actress. And their roles sort of shift and the power balance sort of shifts over time. Uh, and this is like that for dudes, except like it was directed by Pedro, Pedro Almodovar or something. It's really heightened and sexy and operatic almost and just a really great performance by by Bochner and also by uh, by Colin Firth so yeah Hart Bochner but he's I think when his time comes and you know we'll miss your heart when you when you shuffle off this mortal coil but it'll be Hart Bochner best known as Ellis from Die Hard died today at the ripe old age let's say 98 let's give him a long good long innings I mean, if you're only ever going to be remembered for one performance, that's as good a performance to be remembered for. Like that is, I think so. It's it, it's it's so crystallizes the every the the worst aspects of the eighties. <laughs> that is the oh, Reagan yeah. era, like eighties douchebag, <laughs> and he just. I mean, as a kid, I was too young to even get the cocaine references. The idea that like John walks yeah. on them doing coke, but as you mm. get older, you're like, oh man, like this guy is every dickhead I've met at a bar in Sydney. Je- Sum it up in three words. You know, oh, actually, no, sorry, seven words. Show him the watch. It's a Rolex. <laughs> ah! Punch this guy out. <laughs> Another actor that I initially had in my main list, but I, I, I moved down to the honorable mention for similar reasons, because I think that he just did a couple of real good douchebag sleazy roles well and mm. forever became sort of remembered of that. But then if you look at his actual um, IMDb list, he's done a lot of stuff. He's William Atherton, most uh, famously Walter Peck. Uh, this man has no dick from Ghostbusters. <laughs> like, well, and, and, he had to, and he has a sort of one-two punch of Ghostbusters and then Die Hard. And yeah. it's like, uh, from what I understand about him, his life was unbearable, <laughs> like from the late <laughs> 80s onwards. Because... Just certain actors make such an impression, and he is so good at playing that kind of like uppity, pretentious douchebag, the crusty mm. old dean, you know, like that kind of archetype that you just want to see, uh, and uh, you know, just get get their comeuppance. And I think that like my vaguest memory of the last time thing I saw him in was Biodome, <laughs> and oh I remember God. like going, "Oh, cool!" Like Willie Matheson, like he's trying, he's not, and he wasn't playing that kind of the, the dickhead role. William Zadka, you could have probably put into this category <gasps> prior to uh, Cobra Kai coming out, and sort of he's completely yeah. rehabilitated his image. But in terms of just being that, like, especially in the eighties, there was like two guys on your speed dial if you're a Hollywood director or producer <laughs> looking to put a bad guy in your film. <laughs> it's like yeah, two generations of um, if you. Your junior varsity guys, Billy Zabka, and your um, yeah, middle management guys, William Atherton. <laughs> That's right. You're right. One's a high school bully slash college bully. The other one's kind of middle management office bully. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's funny you mentioned Krusty Old Dean as well, because I mean, Atherton, I think before that one-two punch you mentioned of Die Hard and Ghostbusters, or actually, no, sorry, maybe in between, there's a movie called Real Genius with, yeah, Val, with Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and he's the... Um, somewhat shady professor, professor in that. Jerry Hathaway. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And he's basically manipulating these genius kids into uh, yeah, creating weapons for the government or something along those lines. And then you know, Val Kilmer and his buddies aren't having any of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but the thing of it, I mean, I think Atherton actually started out as kind of a fresh-faced leading man. He was the lead opposite Goldie Horn in steven spielberg's not not, maybe his first theatrical feature called the sugarland express yeah well he kind of you can imagine him having like a paul bettany kind of energy you know sort of Mm. like uh sophisticated well-educated you know kind of leading man good looking but then there's certain actors where when they hit upon the archetype that fits them like a glove you're like oh okay unfortunately (laughs) your archetype is reprehensible douchebag that that double-edged sword is like 
you're going to you're going to keep working for decades but yeah. <laughs> every trip to the grocery store is just going to be terrible for you well the rest of my list and, and we'll get to them uh actors who are actually you know really good and, and and can play a variety of roles but i think what they do quite well or where they excel um is in that sleazebag weirdo role just one final honorable mention because uh, sure. we briefly touched on this off air but um i was going to put amanda Plummer. In because she's an actress who, whenever I see her in something, I'm always like, "Oh man, she's so weird!" <laughs> like, oh, I'm yeah. like, what is she? <laughs> what is going on in her head? Like, you just don't. She, some actors, you see them in films, and you feel they're so authentic. You feel like, did they even know that there's a camera rolling? Like, I just can't imagine. Mm. Like, the director calls cut, and Amanda Plummer just drops her character and then goes to yeah. the catering table with everyone else. Like, I just imagine she arrives weird and leaves weird. I mean, I have no idea and no basis <laughs> for that assumption. Well, it's true. I mean, I think listeners will probably know her best as uh, as Honey Bunny, Honey Bunny from, from Pop Fiction, Fiction, right? Which, and that's just one of the great acting hairpin turns in in my memory. I mean, just uh, you know, she's curled up with Tim, well, you know, sitting opposite Tim Roth at the at the diner, and you know, you get the feeling she's the warm one, she's the stabilizing influence, mm. you know, and she's clearly infatuated with this guy, and then. All of a sudden, you can study a little inkling. It's like, oh, there's, you know, there's sparks going on inside this woman, and then, bang, up on the table, got the uh, got the thirty eight in the hand, and just telling all these motherfuckers not to fucking move. It's yeah. Oh my god! And there's also like a fragility to the performance as well, especially when you sort of jump back to that scene uh, towards the end of the film when the tables turn, and you know they realize they're dealing with a bad motherfucker. And she yeah. and she gets really scared, and she and she's going to pee her pants and stuff. And she wants to go home. Like, she wants to go pee. <laughs> yeah, you've got so much kind of sympathy for her. But yeah, she and I, as I said mm. to you off air, I had no idea she was Christopher Plummer's daughter, which kind of blows my mind a bit because yeah. I just would have thought that Christopher Christopher Plummer would just, you know, um, create a, a, an army of, of of austere Christopher Plummer yeah. offspring. <laughs> <laughs> not not little twitchy weirdos. Just this cloner army of urbane types. But yeah. Christopher Plummer's done his share of weird stuff as well. Um, I was watching some uh, some movie the other day that links into what I'm going to be talking about because it stars one of my sleazebag actors. This 80s sci-fi B-movie called Dreamscape mm. uh, in which he's uh, a, a very shady government guy. Is there any other kind? And I'm watching him going... What what are you doing here? That's making you. You're not blinking at all. Oh, you're like a reptile. Uh, <laughs> it was so good. Uh, yeah, he, he will he will occasionally surprise you, Christopher Plummer, because you're right. So urbane, so austere. You know, got that lovely voice and that lovely bearing, and then yeah, that there's something going underneath the surface. It's just strange and disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking speaking of reptilian actors, that's actually a good segue into the first actor that I want to talk about, um, which is William Billy Fitchner, who people might know <laughs> as the creepy weird cop from Go. Probably, what's his biggest role? I mean, it might even be like, uh, in terms of most people know most, maybe the Dark Knight. You know, he's the bank manager at the start of the Dark Knight. That's right, yeah. Prison Break? Does anyone remember the show Prison Break? Oh, was he in Prison Break? I, saw... I think he came on in like season two or season three. As some lawman who was after the um, after the Prison Bake Brothers, yeah, and he just like Pulp Fiction, he was just like the shot of adrenaline in that show, which wasn't bad. It was perfectly good. It was perfectly fun. But all of a sudden, he's playing this offbeat, twitchy lawman, possibly addicted to some kind of drug, yeah, and maybe just the thrill of the chase. But uh, yeah, he's. Um, he, but he's Go, got, I think, is maybe the best one. But also, yeah, that Dark Knight. Uh, it, it was great, you know, when well, the Dark Knight opens, and it's well, like. Hey, that's Victor. But he, he, you know that Michael Mann, oh, you know, Christopher Nolan making The Dark Knight was very influenced by Heat. Yeah. And Fickner's in Heat as Van Zandt. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, it, he does have that. I mean, he kind of looks like a gecko. Like he's got the, or, a, or a, chame, yes. a, a chameleon. He's got those big sort of like, you imagine those eyes move independently of each other, but they don't. <laughs> but I, uh, there's a quality to him. And I guess sort of Go is the one that I think of the most because there is, because the character in Go, that he's presenting one side, which is, you know, he's a very waspish looking dude, 
but then almost like a self-contained David Lynch movie, there's something weird happening under the surface, yeah. like in go at some weird kind of sexual, you know, potentially Christian thing <laughs> happening under, under the surface. Is, aren't, aren't, they, aren't they like multi-level marketing or something or Amway, Amway. or something? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it has that kind of, it has this sort of cultish kind of vibe to it. And I think that mm. that is the thing that always comes across with him is this, it, it's this idea that, there's something broken about this guy. Like he presents like a normal yeah. dude, you know, in the right role, you could almost think he'd be sort of, you know, he's kind of, he's not, he's not unappealing. He's not ugly, but there yeah. is just something like, oh, does he, when, because those big bug eyes and, well, I mean, if you're listening, Billy, I love you, but those big eyes. Yeah. <laughs> like got the bug eyes. You imagine that he is like, as, as you're talking, he's secretly wondering how he can skin and eat you. <laughs> It's true. I mean, it's it's kind of that Christopher Walken thing. I mean, you know, certain angles it's like, oh, you're the most beautiful man who ever lived, and then another mm. angle is like, oh yeah, you're <laughs> you're de- you definitely have a sex dungeon. Yeah. yeah, and I also think too, there's an element like he often gets cast in military or like police enforcement roles, yeah. which I think does sort of speak to that deeper distrust we have for authority. That like, although he has the badge, because. Another film we've talked about in previous episodes of the video store is Strange Days. And he's one I just of the psych- I just remembered, yeah, that's right. He was the cop opposite D'Onofrio in Strange yeah, Days. And yeah, and he's the psychotic cop. And I think that there is an element of that as well. It's like, oh yeah, so you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, but this cop deep down he's gonna do something creepy. He's got handcuffs and a gun and you don't know what he's gonna do with it. Charlie, imagine you are pulled over random traffic stop. The two cops who pull you over are Vincent D'Onofrio and William Fickner. <laughs> Forget it. You're not going home. <laughs> the two weirdest dudes in the world. I mean, yeah, he, I, I, look, I think, and I actually think he's a pretty amazing actor. Like he's done other films mm. where he's, he sort of plays a bit more straight and, and he's really awesome. But if you just, I kind of like it when they don't cast him, like one of the other actors we'll get to as well, as soon as he's cast, like if there's any kind of um, ambiguity about the character's motivation, you know yeah. that they're going to be bad. Like it's like you need to be more imaginative casting uh, casting agents of Hollywood. Like if you're going to put, you know, William Fitchner in your film as the guy who ends up portraying yeah. his unit or whatever, we're going to see it coming. I think I'd like to see the opposite now with him, where it's mm. like, oh, you think he's going to be the bad guy, the weirdo, but he ends up being the hero. Well, there's a movie that he's in, a Nicolas Cage B movie. Is there? Yeah, kind of? Drive Angry. Uh, called Drive Angry. Yeah. <laughs> Which I where... saw the movies in 3D. <laughs> in 3D. Um, Here comes the hatchet. Where, Look out. <laughs> where, where Nicolas Cage literally comes steals a muscle car and drives it out of hell. Yeah. Um, and is pursued by a gentleman named the accountant who keeps mm. you know the ledgers balanced in hell. And it's William Fickner in, yeah. in a lovely suit, very well spoken, you know, he's looking neat and presentable and all that, except he'll actually literally rip the heart out of your chest if you don't give him what he wants. Mm. He's yeah, the best um, thing in that mm. film. Like, and I think too, it's not, because I remember seeing the trailer for that and being like, oh yeah, I think I'm into this. Like, this looks like a good schlocky kind of, you know, it was when sort of the Grindhouse kind of revival yeah. was happening. It was not nearly as, like it needed to be shot on 16 and to be like real stunts. There's too much CGI. Too it was stuff. a little wink wink as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And and the and the 3D just completely undermines like any of yeah. those kind of action scenes. Like, I don't know why, but I have a very clear memory of one 3D scene where a bad guy throws a hatchet at Nicolas Cage and he like ducks to the side and it slices off like a section of his wig. You know, like, I mean, not, <laughs> not his wig, his hair in the film, but yeah. like Nicolas Cage's wig. And it's just been like, this is, this is dumb. Like it needed to be nastier and dumber. But he, because he could, you could imagine William Fitchner going in a Nicolas Cage direction. Like he has yeah. enough weirdness and he's got the same big bug eyes as Nicolas Cage, but he's almost playing the straight man. And I think he does it really well. Like Nicolas Cage is doing his Nicolas Cagey stuff. But Billy, yeah. Bill, I keep calling him Billy like he's my mate. Bill, Bill Fitchner. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they call him Bill. Uh, it, yeah, you're right. He he just he holds that kind of. He has a a way of nodding and winking at the camera that isn't too mm. on the nose. Like you get that he gets that it's a ridiculous premise and a ridiculous yeah. film, but he still commits with enough kind of leeway that you're like, oh yeah, this is fun for him. Absolutely, yeah. and incredibly versatile. I mean, he's a yeah. Very threatening actor, but a very funny actor. Yeah, there's not much that he can't do. Yeah, well, he couldn't save Ultraviolet. That's the one thing. <laughs> no one could save Ultraviolet. <laughs> do you have movies like that that you keep going back to and you think, 
this is going to be the time that the key turns because there's something in here that's it's close. We're so close. I mean, I think we we talked about it on a pre on movies just like that on a previous episode. It's yeah, like, maybe is it a you need to be twenty five percent better. Yeah. Ultraviolet needs to be seventy five percent better, but that twenty five is like hmm, okay. <laughs> well, I think the major problem is they need to get the corridor crew onto Ultraviolet and to redo all the visual effects because right. it's so bad. Like that's what I think. That, like you can, I can. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, CGI, I fucking hate it. Like if you are aware of the parameters of it and you go into it and it's going to be Sky Captain in the world of tomorrow or whatever, sure. Like I understand it. But Ultraviolet is trying to be the Matrix (laughs) and it's terrible. Yeah, it felt like it was trying to be a live action anime. Yeah. And it was like, "Mm, don't know, don't know. Who is your first sleazebag? (laughs) This comes with a bit of a preface. Um We've spoken in the past about the, the the joys of growing up in the 90s and the 2000s, the pre-streaming, pre-internet, pre-globalization era, where if you wanted information about the world around you, the wider world around you, you had to get magazines, particularly overseas magazines, international ones. Um, and being a little movie nerd, I was a big fan of the 90s of things like Premiere and uh, Movie Line. Uh, and when you want to go a little bit upmarket, a little bit posh, um, there was one called Film Comment that had these, mm. you know, had the occasional very erudite article about some foreign thing, but also, you know, would do articles about the Coens or Clive Barker or it's how I first heard about one of my favorite movies of all time, King in New York. I was reading about it and going, this sounds like the shit. When does this open? Took two years to get to Australia. Um, <laughs> but um, I eventually sort of sold off a bunch of those magazines when I thought, oh, yeah, they're taking up too much space and all that. But I photocopied a bunch of stuff out of them, uh, and then I lost those. Oh, <laughs> but, no. But then I found them recently because there was one article in particular that I was really, really keen on out of um, out of Movie Line, and it was an interview by James Elroy, the great crime uh, author, with – and the article is called The King of Made, Made for Video. It's one Wings Hauser. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now – what is Wings best known for? Well, he's the, first of all, he's the um, father of Cole Hauser, co-star of Yellowstone and um, the villain in Too Fast, Too Furious and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, Wings is best known for just bringing it, you might say, in uh, a variety of usually crime movies, usually uh, direct-to-video back in the day, although he would occasionally pop up in a big screen release and, yeah, it's just like, the big screen is where you belong, Wings, because you are maximalist. You are just not quite intense. handsome enough. Not quite handsome enough to be a leading man. Not quite brawny enough to be an action star. He kind of sits in that middle ground where he's got a great face, like he's really yeah. memorable, and, and he's one of those actors that, especially you know, if you you know, were in video stores in the eighties and nineties, you knew his face because he was on fucking every second, every second cover, every <laughs> second knockoff. Absolutely was. Um, yeah, but. Um, he, he, he basically took a role in a movie from the early 80s, I think 82, 81 or 82, called Vice Squad. Um, now, there were a plethora of movies called like Hollywood Vice Squad and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But this was the original and best Vice Squad and sort of followed this um, sex worker through a couple of nights in uh, in LA as she plied her trade. Um, but she runs afoul of a pimp named Ramrod, played by our boy Wings. Ramrod is, how do we put this politely, batshit fucking crazy. You know, he, um, he sort of dresses country, in, like a cross between country and western and disco. Uh, and how can how do you put this? <laughs> He's not polite to his stable. He doesn't treat his stable of ladies well. I'm just watching the trailer on Silently as you're talking. And, uh, yeah, he's beating someone's head against a steering wheel. <laughs> this film looks like it was shot on, like, something between Super 8 and 16. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's it's grimy as hell, but it has its fans. I mean, I think Scorsese's a fan of, of Vice Squad. Yeah, right. But it's primarily for Wingshauser, who just, yeah, starts, starts at 100 and then goes from there. It's incredible. I mean, it's... Uh, I don't know if it's coke or energy or what, but yeah, um, yeah Wings is Wings is pretty amazing, uh, and he even sings the um, he sings the theme song for Vice Squad, a song called Neon, really? yeah, called Neon Slime. <laughs> um, 
But I remember, I remember Wings from the early nineties in Roseanne. He for one season he was the Connor's neighbor on Roseanne, and he played the father of Danielle Harris, who film nerds might know as like the scream queen from the Halloween films. She was the 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 daughter of the little sister. Yeah, and the last Boy Scout, but she, she was a little sister of Mike Myers. I think that was the twist. She, oh, okay, yeah. or a cousin. She was some relation to Mike Myers, which ended up being that she was psychotic as well. Because I think you thought she was going to be like a little Jamie Lee victim, and instead she's just nuts. Yeah, she's yeah. nuts. That's <laughs> right. Because I had the biggest crush on Danielle Harris, and so like when I and I loved Roseanne. Like Roseanne's one of my all-time favorite sitcoms, and I remember he was the dad, and it was kind of funny because. Like Wings, he can play a heavy really well, but in Roseanne, he played this kind of like almost like uh, too good, too nice for his own good, easy manipulated. Like Daniel Harris was this like promiscuous, yeah. smart arsey uh, teenage yeah. daughter that he couldn't keep control of, and you know the Connors were always like trying to help him out. And I remember just being like, oh, you know, uh, he's the nice dad, and then when I started working in the video store, it's just like every second B movie knockoff is holding a machine gun. I'm like. What the not the, the Connor's nice neighbor is actually like a an action yeah. hero? This doesn't make any sense to me. And he directed a bunch of those as well. I mean, uh, yeah, movies like Cold Fire or Street Asylum or uh, <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember if it's Nightmare at Noon or what, what else. Deadly Force is one of his. L.A. Bounty, <laughs> Living to Die. Good stuff, good stuff by Wings. <laughs> but every once in a while, you know, some, some reputable dude would take a chance on Not even take a chance, but it's like, eh, Wings is right. He, he has a, a very small part in uh, Michael Mann's The Insider. Right. Um, opposite uh, Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. Or he has a pretty sizable role in <laughs> the only film to date – Actually, he's dead now, so yeah, it's the only film. Uh, written directed by Norman Mailer called Tough Guys Don't Dance. And yeah, Wings is actually, again, bringing it there. So um, yeah, he'd pop up in reputable movies, but he really sort of found his groove in um, in B-movies and, and director video stuff. You feel like he's the kind of actor that, and we probably say this most weeks, <laughs> that Quentin Tarantino could just like grab and, and put in one scene in one of his yeah. new films and it's like oh he fits that kind of quentin aesthetic you know he yeah absolutely he, in a weird way he has a hollywood pedigree but it's a off-broadway pedigree you know it's all those b movies mm. it's all genre films and i you could you know maybe not a robert forster style leading role but i could definitely see you know whatever quentin's next film is the the crusty cop or the the yeah. redneck trailer park dad played by wings hauser well it's funny you mentioned uh, the the background because to the best of my recollection, I'm sorry, I don't have my this properly written down, but I'm pretty sure that Wingshauser is like related to one of the Warner Brothers, as in Warner Brothers, as in the studio Warner Brothers, as in the studio. Like he's might be related to Jack Warner or something like that. Let me bring up his. Tr- I've got his. Uh, I've got his. Um, yeah. So he has a long list of credits. It oh, is. Yeah. It is enormous. Okay, trivia. Here we go. So, uh, how tall do you reckon he is? See, he looks towering. I would say like 6'2", 6'3". Oh, you're bang on the money. He's 6'2". Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So let's see. His, uh, his father was Dwight Hauser, who was uh, big in radio, and his mother was Geraldine Hauser. Uh, he was raised by his dad on his own. doesn't say anything about the Warner Brothers, though. No. No, okay, he was maybe. just nah, nah. maybe that was a tall tale or just an absolute maybe, mistake. I'm sorry, there's, I found I found more. So he's he's got a he's got a daughter who acts as well called Bridget. Hmm. He's a star athlete. Made his acting debut at five. Big fan of the Dodgers. Uh, Wings' <laughs> wife. Wings' wife is related to Edward G. Robinson. Okay, so maybe no, that's where you got it wrong. Yeah, I can't see anything about. Okay, he's he's got a little quote here about playing Ramrod in Vice Squad. He said, it's interesting about that role. I didn't prepare a damn for it. I was doing the soap opera, The Young and the Restless, and dying to get out of it. I'd been on it for about three and a half years. We were shooting it during the day and all night. I would do Vice Squad. I was so tired, I didn't have any social graces, so I just let go. Well, there you go. That's <laughs> there it. There you go. There's the explanation. If you can find Vice Squad, by all means, check it out. It is yeah, good and grimy, real good grindhouse stuff. 
You know, just let's take a little uh, diversion for a second. Speaking of mm-hmm. good and grimy, um, I know that you saw Prey uh, last week, and you you yeah. were okay. You, you you know you weren't effusive in your praise. You thought it was did some things competently and other things not. I really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. one thing I really thought it could have done has been was being shot on film. Like I really yeah. loved the look of it, and I think you know the cinematography was amazing, but I, it it. It, la- it was too clean, like especially for something that was period where there was a lot of mud and dirt and smoke and haze. I just feel like if it just be- even if they, I don't know, there was some after effects where they'd put some grain over it, like it would have really helped the film feel much more visceral. I think you're right. Yeah, it felt just a bit tidy, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like the first Predator, like it feels sweaty and claustrophobic and, Mm. you know, you're slapping bugs on the back of your neck and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's really good and an immersive experience. But this one, which I really enjoyed, but it did feel there was, you were distant from the action. You were distant from the experience. Like all that kind of like hand-to-hand combat. Like if it had been gritty and just a bit more edgy, and then there's no way they're ever going to do that, you know, with this sort of mainstream Hollywood film. But I just was like, oh, that's a shame that they didn't. Just go, hey, why don't we shoot this on 16? Yeah, this thing, even these sort of sweaty, unshaven French fur trapper types. It's not very clean. Yeah, you'd look like you've spent a a little while in in the makeup trailer getting that look. (laughs) Which is a bit of a drag. But, I mean, Uh, look, it's it's, it's a pretty good movie, I thought. I mean, like like you said, my praise was mm, not guarded or even reserved, but... um, I mean, I'm I'm just a massive fan of, of course, the first Predator. I love the second one as well. But I mean, a, a critic that I really respect said something on Twitter. I was like, "Think about the pre- thing about the Predator franchises. There's no bad ones." And I'm like, mm. "You're not entirely wrong, <laughs> but yeah. you're not right either." I mean, the the Predator, the most recent one, the Shane Black one, the Shane is Black one, garbage. But there's yeah. some stuff in it that I kind of like. Yeah. Um, even the Alien versus Predator movies. I mean, I quite like the first one. The second one is kind of junk, but it, it also has a real mean streak as well, which I appreciate. So there's something to salvage in all of them, and some are just unimpeachable masterpieces. Well, what I think it's uh, – well, what it appealed to to me about it, and I think maybe this appealed to a lot of other people, especially coming off the back of having watched – before I watched it, I, wa- I tried to watch Multiverse of Madness. I'm like, fuck, this is like <laughs> terrible, unwatchable. Everything about it felt just so fake and yeah. just cookie cutter. Like his wig, I could not get past Benedict Cumberbatch's wig. It looks terrible. I don't know if it's my HD TV or whatever. But then also <laughs> Top Gun, I came out of Top Gun going like, what was that? Like it was just this wanky fan service and I'm just so over it. Mm. To, so to then see another franchise film where it's like, okay, We'll give you a couple little nods at a fan service here. There's going to be a line from the first film. But yeah. ultimately, it felt like well, the same story, but a new version of the story that wasn't obsessed with yeah. kind of linking back to the first or linking back to the franchise. I'm sure there's like a million YouTube videos out there with all the Easter eggs and stuff. But to me, it just felt like, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is, this is, it reminded me of the Dark Horse comics where they're like, okay, let's take the Predator and we'll just throw it in an environment where you wouldn't ordinarily think to see a Predator and, and see what happens there. Well, that's that's the joy of the Predator franchise. It really is sort of plug and play in that regards. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, find a, situa- a situation, find a potentially badass hero, or you know, someone you can follow and respect. Then add Predator. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Right. M- musicals coming next. Just add Predator. Uh, just add Predator. <laughs> um, I my next uh, sleazeball weirdo is an incredible actress, very well-respected, award-winning, and can do anything. But the reason I sort of selected her is she always makes me uneasy. And similar to Amanda Plummer, when she's on screen, I'm like, oh, what's going on? But even when she's playing like a good character, and that's Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yeah. I think Hateful Eight is like, to me, that's like her best ever performance because I think mm-hmm. she was just given complete carte blanche to go as – because actresses also aren't really given the license or maybe they're too scared to just go super ugly. I don't feel that with her. She does not mind, you know, getting a broken nose, snot, everything. Mm-hmm. Like she'll do whatever it is that she thinks the character is. You know, Frances McDormand is kind of similar, but I think Jennifer Jason Lee does the unhinged uh, better than that. And, and I think of films like um, – even Miami Blues, uh, yeah. or Miami is Miami Blue, Miami Blues, Miami uh, Blues, yeah, Miami Blues, yeah. Like you know, she's just so 
weird in that film. You know, she's meant to be the hooker with a heart of gold, but she's just kind of got this, always there's something bubbling underneath that you're like, is she going to hug me or kill me? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's a commonality with the actors that we're talking about today and you know, supporting actors and uh, I don't know, bit part actors that we love. They they may not have much to work with on the screen, but they always suggest a huge life outside the screen. It's like hundred percent, yeah, yeah, a life on either side, and a life you can probably imagine on the other side, unless they get capped, you know, yeah. they, or you know, hung or whatever, um, as yeah. as what happens to Jason Jennifer Jason Lee in the in the Hateful Eight. Spoilers, folks, but there it is. Um, <laughs> but and but she was like that from the very very beginning because I think she's been working since she was a teenager, essentially. She's yeah. the daughter of the late actor uh, Vic Morrow, who uh, you know died uh, during the making of Twilight Zone, the movie. Twilight Zone, yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, she sort of came to prominence in Fast Times at Ridgemont High back in '82 or '83. Yeah, and even I mean, then, it's, it's I mean, ridiculous that like she's sort of considered this sort of mousy, you know, girl next door because her best yeah. friend is Phoebe Cates. But like, Cates, you put anyone yeah. next to Phoebe Cates and they become mousy and girl next Absolutely. door. I mean, she's beautiful. I mean, that's the other thing about Jennifer Jason Leigh. She's really lucky as an actor and that she can play anything like she can play oh, yeah. glamorous if she wants but she can also play ugly she can do it she can do it all i just find her much more interesting when she's playing like when she's a really a, just given license to go weird like single oh, white yeah. female is probably the one that most people will know and that's like yeah you know that's like it's just a pot boiler kind of like mid-90s thriller back when they used to make those kind of films but a well-made version of it though I yeah mean, you know, it's got a Got a good cast, got a good director behind the camera, and it's got great production value. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that if that was made or remade today, it'd probably be on Netflix and, you know, starring one of the, you know, actresses from Riverdale and, I don't know, one yeah. from another, another show that I don't CW watch. CW show. <laughs> <laughs> one from the Vampire Diaries. <laughs> yeah, she always, I always feel like, though, she, she seems better suited to indies. Like, when you see her in, like, a backdraft or something, you're always like, oh, well, you know, you're happy to see yeah. her because she's so good. But it's like, oh, are they going to let her do what she does? Is she allowed to be, you know, really yeah. weird? One of my favourite performances, and it's not even really – it's not sort of the sleazy weirdo in the, you know, in the obvious sense, is the anniversary party where she just plays neurotic oh, yeah. really well. And an anniversary party. So I think it was written and directed by her and Alan Cumming. They play That's husband right, yeah. and wife who just have an anniversary party. And it's one of those kind of uh, ultra, ultra low budget. You know, they just got all their famous actor friends like Phoebe Cates and Kevin Klein to come in and mm-hmm. just play ensemble roles. Um, and there's just like this amazing scene where they all take ecstasy. Gwyneth Paltrow comes around <laughs> as the annoying, the annoying, I mean, a real precursor to what she would end up being, the annoying, <laughs> young, beautiful actress who gets everyone high. And, you know, she has this amazing scene where she's high on ecstasy and worried about the state of her marriage to Alan Cumming. And I don't know if it's improvised or if it was scripted where she just, halfway through the scene where they're talking about, you know, I don't know if he loves me or if I'm getting, because she's playing a, a Hollywood actress sort of similar to who she is, where she just lies on the floor because the ecstasy is so strong. <laughs> she's just like, can we just lie on the floor? It feels so good. And it's just a brilliant <laughs> bit of kind of, it just feels so real and spontaneous. And she's, yeah, as we were saying about other uh, other actors we've talked about, incredibly versatile as well. She's got a um, a great role in the Coen Brothers movie, The Hudsucker Proxy, mm. where she's oh, basically she's playing, awesome in that. yeah, playing like a 40s, screwball comedy listen here see Dan- listen here <laughs> yeah. doing the uh, yeah. doing the Roslyn Russell or the Carol Lombard or something and really just nailing it it's fantastic um, yeah. and it's not really what you would have expected from but it, not much she can't do yeah no she's incredible she's incredible alright who's your next weirdo <laughs> <laughs> weirdo is right uh, <laughs> this is a, an actress no longer with us um Actually, I better double check that, but uh, I'd be surprised if she was because uh, she seemed to live pretty rough. But uh, her name is Susan Tyrell. Uh, I now, know I had no idea who this was, I, and even after looking her up, I still have no idea who this is. <laughs> uh, let's have a look here. Sorry, just uh, yes, she passed away ten years ago, uh, June the sixteenth, okay. twenty twelve. But she, once she seen, missed. never forgotten. Because yeah, but. Uh, not a lot of high profile titles, but whenever she popped up in something, as you said before, Charlie, you know, it's like 
is this person going to stop when I say cut? Do they know the difference between real life and fantasy? Because, yeah, Susan Terrell, wow. <laughs> I mean, um, she's she sort of burst onto the scene. She worked a bit with Andy Warhol um, right. and the Factory Guys back in the day when, um, when Warhol was making movies. Uh, she was in a movie called Andy Warhol's Bad. Uh, but I think she sort of got a real start in a movie called Fat City. Uh, directed by John Huston and co-starring Stacey Keach and a young Jeff Bridges about uh, sort of hard luck boxes in California in the 70s. It's uh, it's a very 1970s movie in that everything is dirty and depressing and there's no hope. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really good movie, but she plays the drunken, I guess, girlfriend of Stacey Keach, who was this washed up fighter who's trying to make a bit of a comeback and also trying to help this young boxer played by Bridges. And it's like, did Houston just go out on the street? Did he go to Skid Row <laughs> yes. and find someone who has been living rough and said, hey, do you want to be in movies? I'll pay you a sandwich. You know, because <laughs> it's... I When I say feral, I mean it as a compliment. She seems legitimately feral. But right. it's great. It's really, really good. And so I, I, but I watched another movie of hers last night. One called, it's gone by multiple titles. The one I watched was called Night Warning, but it also goes by the awesome name Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Ah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that that's is rad. Great. Why'd they call it Night Warning? That's ridiculous. Yeah, just but, streamlined it off the back of the title. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? Just like yeah. throw it down the first page. <laughs> Sold. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And she is the, aunt of a, a young man whose parents were killed when he was a little boy and she's raised him and now he's 17 she's taking a little too much interest in him right. um the way she wakes up, up and wakes him up in the morning is perverse um and she's taking way too much interest in um uh the relationship that he has with the nice girl next door all that kind of business. And she doesn't want him to go to college. She wants to stay and look after her forever. And maybe in other ways, more than just helping around the house, if you know what I mean. Oh, um, boy. And, yeah, every time she's on screen, it's like, oh. I feel really nervous for the young actor who's in the scene with her because it's like, I, I'm guessing she probably knocked on your trailer door a lot and said, you want to run <laughs> some scenes? Sorry, Susan Terrell, <laughs> yeah. I'm defaming the dead here. But, I mean, that's how it feels. She's just but that's a bringing so much... Quality. Yeah, febrile, feral energy to it. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, she, of course, she worked with John Waters later on. She showed up in Crybaby. I was at Johnny Cry Depp. Baby. But, um, yeah, things went a bit rough for Susan later in, uh, later in the game. Um, she, let's see, unfortunately, well, fun fact, for a couple of years, she lived with her villages, aka Tattoo from uh, Fantasy Island. Oh, the plane, the plane. Yeah, they had a nice two-year relationship in the mid-70s. Different time, what can I tell you? Um, but she had a, a terrible blood disease in the early 2000s and had to have both her legs removed. It looks like they did a documentary on her in 1992. Susan I wouldn't be Curry, surprised. My Rotten Life, a, bitty, a, bitter, a, a bitter operetta. Oh. Yeah. She wrote it herself, uh, and it's a musical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated. It had a budget of fifteen hundred dollars. Wow. See if you can track that down. Wow, that'd be amazing. Directed by Rocky Schenk, written by Susan Tyrell, starring Susan Tyrell. Susan Tyrell, My Rotten Life, a bitter operetta. I mean, maybe uh, yeah. it isn't a documentary. Maybe it's just a like a fictional musical. But that's intriguing. Could well be. But then you you look at the rest of her career, and I mean, she worked with guys like, um, well, Paul Verhoeven. She worked with Pee Wee Herman. Uh, um, and, of course, she was in the great B-movies Angel, with the immortal tagline, high school student by day, hooker by night, and Avenging Angel. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Susan Terrell, uh, once seen, never forgot. Oh, she's in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, right. With Ver yeah. Verhoeven. Yeah, right. So, yeah, she's it's amazing, uh, with, it? with your girl, Jennifer Jason Leigh. With your woman, Jennifer Jason Leigh. With Lee. my Sorry. woman. <laughs> but she, <laughs> she was a girl back then, Jennifer Jason Leigh. It seemed like she was about 17 or 18 when... Um, when Flesh and Blood was made. Yeah, what was that? So the last film she did was 2012. It was, it's called Kid Thing. 
Oh, it looks like a sweet little... And he's a girl with no moral compass, thanks to a lack of parental supervision. That actually looks good. One day while playing in the woods, a voice calls out to her from the deep abandoned well, causing her to consider the right course of action. Well, I'm intrigued. I want to see what that film's all about. Uh, all right. My last uh, sleazebag actor is kind of similar to the William Fitchner in that this dude can play really anything, but seems to always thrive when he's playing the sleazebag, and that is Garrett Dillahunt. Now, Love this guy. Probably the most recent thing people might know him from is Army of the Dead, the Zack Snyder casino zombie heist film, mm. where he plays the most easily identifiable <laughs> like backstabber <laughs> in film history, like just from the word go. Like even the characters straight out say that guy's going to backstab yeah. us and they still take him on the mission, which makes zero sense they would have just all. killed him? I love this dude. Like I, I can't remember when I first saw him. I think it might have even been... Do you remember there was that um, Sarah Connor Chronicles, the Terminator series? That's right, yeah. And, and he plays the Terminator in that. And he plays a Terminator who kind of starts to kind of like bug out and, and, and you know, oh, uh, gets discover glitchy. his humanity. But he's a bad Terminator, like not a good Terminator. And he just has this quality, like Bill Fitchner. He's more handsome than Bill Fitchner. He could easily yeah. be a leading man again, but... There is something about him that is just slightly off. It was almost perfect casting to make him like a robot or a yeah. cyborg. Because he plays he sort of, still very well. Yeah, but he also, like in the Army of the Dead, he plays like cocky sleazy really well, which is like a different side to him. But he's done a bunch of kind of um, – uh, uh, Andrew Dominic's a big fan of him, Assassination of Jesse James, and oh, I think he was in Killing Him Softly as well. But he just – I love him because he just has this sort of quality of like, again, it's that waspish, you know, could be a Republican voting kind of dude, but you're like, oh man, like he could also be a serial killer. He could be a CEO or a serial killer, potentially the same thing. <laughs> I'm having a look at his uh, at CV now. The, one of the things that I remember him for is that he was initially in Deadwood. He was in the first season of Deadwood, the great uh, HBO oh, Western. Right. I think he's the guy who kills... Oh, not Jesse James, not Wyatt Earp. Mon, um, uh, Billy, uh, no. Wild um, Bill Hickok. Wild Bill, he, yeah. He shoots Wild Bill in the back. And it was kind of meant to be a one-and-done role for, for Dillahunt, and they liked him so much they brought him back a few mm. seasons later as a different character. I think they slapped a, a fake mo on him or something. It's like, yeah, Dillahunt, you've never failed to uh, satisfy. Come give us some more of that Garrett stuff. So, yeah, I mean, um, but... Yeah, and then and then he popped up in the Deadwood movie that they made, uncredited as drunk number two. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I mean, I he's... if he's the kind of like, if you think about, you know, the the roles that say like a, I don't know, like it. I mean, let's, let's not say Chris Pratt because he's a big star. But if you're a handsome mm. leading man, like a Scott Eastwood, fairly generic, milk toast yeah. leading man actor, and I think the reason why Scott Eastwood isn't a bigger star is because he's bland. Like, I don't think yeah. – he either chooses not to, you know, I mean, maybe he's getting offered bad guy roles and he doesn't take them. But Garrett Dillahunt, I would accept in either. Like, you're going to say, oh, yeah. he's the, you know, he's the he, you know, he's the dependable dad or he's the sleazy, you know, mercenary. I'm going to believe either one of those things. And he seems to – he I'm sure he does both, but he seems to really thrive playing the bad guy. And I think that that is what – you look at his list of credits, like William Fitchner, he's done so much stuff. TV and film. And I think it's because he's just like equally adept at both, but really, really good at being the bad guy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Scott Eastwood. I mean, and how he's not offered villains. Probably the best role that he's had to date is in um, the Guy Ritchie movie, Wrath of Man, Jason Statham one. It. It's, it's, a, it's really good, actually. It's a very good, gritty crime thriller. And. Statham's got his role as Jason Statham. But, um, yeah, the plot revolves around this uh, crew of ex-military guys who are pulling armed robberies around uh, around LA, and Eastwood is the loose cannon. He's the... Yeah. Uh, he's the right, so he well, we can't does. leave these guys. That He's the Wayne Grove. Saw my face. Bang. Well, so, well, didn't they try and make him a bad guy in one of the Fast and the Furious films, and then it didn't quite work, so they had to bring in Kurt Russell to kind of bring some charisma? To this, it's essentially the same role. It's like, oh, you're the, you know, you're the uh, agent, yeah. in whatever 
generic, you know, government. The agent. man in black, yeah, and the man yeah, in- the man in black. But he had no charisma, so it's like shit. Let's get Kurt Russell. He can do the same thing, but be super charming about. It. I think yeah, you think it was like Eastwood's two IC or something. I think they're bringing back Scott Eastwood for the late for the last Fast and the Furious one. But uh, yeah, you're right. He's I, a bit he's a bit bland. He's a little vanilla. He's sort of lacking met- Clint's yeah bastardness. I, uh, back to, to, to Garrett, when I, I think I was in LA or maybe it was actually in Australia at a film festival, I met an uh, American actor called Enver, Co- uh, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, I think it's Joe Catch, who you might know from Dollhouse. He's, uh, he was in the, the Joss Whedon series Dollhouse. Mm. He's got a small part in the Avengers. Anyway, he uh, went through NY, whatever, and you know, NYU drama or whatever. And he said that Garrett Dillahunt was his mentor. When you leave uh-huh. that school, you're assigned a mentor. And he said, like, he is the nicest, most conscientious guy who he can call at any time. And his advice to him, because in Dollhouse, like, I don't know if you remember the part of that, but it's like, so you've got these um, essentially mm. like clones who uh, uh, they can adapt to any situation, play any part. They get sort of programmed, they download a kind of personality and they get sent out yeah. on assignment. Um, and uh, Enver is a really good actor and he was really good at playing all these different roles. And that was off the back of Garrett Dillhunt saying, hey, if you want to work, make sure you you don't just tip the one role. You're a good-looking guy, but just don't go for the mm-hmm. leading man roles. Don't be afraid to play a bad guy. Don't be afraid to do bit parts. Don't be afraid to do TV. Don't be afraid. And so I think that, you know, hasn't I don't think it's really worked for Enver as, well, <laughs> as much as it's worked for Garrett, but you can sort of see the philosophy in, in, in his career. Yeah, no, Garrett's certainly taken his own advice. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his IMDb now and it's just stretching on and on and on. And yeah, so many different things in there. I mean, he's the deputy to Tommy Lee Jones in No Country for Old Men. Yeah. So he's, and sort of the comic relief, if that movie can have comic relief, that's what Garrett provides. Or he's got like a little, a great little part in Looper where he's he's trying to track down Joseph Gordon Levitt and using that sort of politeness and ma'am oh yeah. I'd, I'd love a glass of lemonade thank you man but then he's just ready to shoot a kid in the head it's um yeah yeah he's he's good stuff garrett Dillon. i like that guy i think army of the dead too is the most fun of like i did not care for that film at all no but I, mean, I, I i liked him a lot because i felt like he got it and he got what yeah. the part was meant to be and he just chewed scenery like you wouldn't believe and I and that's what you want from one of these actors. You know, that's why I love Jennifer Jason Lee. It's like, yeah, just give her the ball. <laughs> Let's just pass yeah. her the ball and just watch what she does. But they're also good team players in that um if they know they've got a role that's just okay, I'm I'm the vanilla in this in this particular Sunday. I'm the vanilla ice cream. I'm not gonna try and overpower it. You know, I mean yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee when she you you mentioned backdraft. I'd almost I'd forgotten that she was in that. I was thinking like yeah. Road to Perdition, where she was Tom Hanks's wife. Oh, yeah. Thankless role. It's so many. Yeah, yeah, but it's like she didn't feel the need to. Ooh, I'm going to give this character a, a quirk or a tick or anything like that. It's just like no, I'll just I'll just play it as it lays. So yeah. and good on him for that. You know, it's uh, it's good unselfish work as an actor, which I appreciate and admire. You sounded very walking then. It's good, unselfish. <laughs> you said you got a it's, bit walking there. Speaking of sleaze, the king of the oddball. I uh, know we should uh, have a little sort of um, a little shrine to our man. <laughs> yeah, he essayed the he Chris. essayed the uh, the archetype. Walking, Bow, bowing down to you. Oh, doing such good work. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, Guy Davis with the impressions. Who else can you do? No, walking's my walking's my go-to. <laughs> okay. So many times when I was drunk in the nineties, I'd be just doing bits from True Romance and King of New York. It's like <laughs> I won't do it anymore. Now I'm self-conscious. No, please, please, please. The, the floor is yours. <laughs> next time, next time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Who is your final actor? Uh, my final actor, the. Um, the triple threat, the triple-barreled name, one David Patrick Kelly. Yes. Uh, again, five words. Audrey Horn's uncle. <laughs> and five words, seven syllables. <laughs> oh no! Warriors come out and oh, play, Which and then he just keeps doing very- it. <laughs> that was his very first role too. I mean, he's he's another one of those dudes that you're just like, man, he seems to have, like you, you imagine that Hollywood just like chews up and spits out like the good looking ones. But if you're mm. a really good character actor, you'll just work forever. Like you just will, won't stay you? Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, he burst on the scene a big way in the Warriors, playing uh, playing Luther, who sets the whole plot in motion when he um, shoots Cleon, the um, the sort of the charismatic uh, gang leader gang who wants leader. to unite all the gangs in New York to basically take over the city. Why haven't they remade that film yet? You reckon that would be ripe? They've tried so many times. Apparently, um, Tony Scott wanted to remake it before he died. Oh, I would have loved to have seen yeah. that. Yeah, and he was right in the middle of his sort of man-on-fire domino phase where he was really experimenting with visuals and things like that. It would have been kind of interesting. I apparently did a shit ton of research on it. You know, met I with guess gang- the problem with doing it now, like there was kind of a like a fairy tale nature to New York in the 70s, mm. you know, where – and it does have a – I mean, like it's not realistic – Gangs like you know, there's a fucking baseball game. The here, baseball furies, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and nowadays, I guess if you're gonna like, it would be all like the fucking Proud Boys and shit. Like, it's not yes. fun, <laughs> is it? Like, you got a series of like yeah. uh, trans kids being chased by Proud Boys through oh, New York. It's not a fun, not a not no. a fun film, really. If you want to uh, make it realistic, yeah. But it's funny. I mean, you're right. The worry, uh, the original Warriors does have that sort of heightened, almost comic book feel to it. Yeah, uh, and then David Patrick Kelly comes in as yeah, this, again, feral sort of gang member who just kills the most powerful gang boss in New York. Yeah, I just like doing stuff like that. You know, he didn't have yeah. a reason. He didn't have any ulterior motive. It's like, yeah, just felt like it. And um, again, he looks like one of those guys that might have just been picked up off the streets. Like, you look crazy. Can you be crazy on cue? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but of course, that wasn't the case. I mean, he's... Showed up in a bunch he, of other movies, and um, he's yeah, also as, awesome in in the Crow, like T Bird in the Crow. That's right. Like yeah. that's that's kind of you know, for me, that's kind of like um, that's the the pinnacle. Like he came off Twin Peaks and then goes into the Crow, and alongside another guy who could make the list, Michael Wincott, top dollar. Oh, like Michael man. Wincott, like he's so excellent. That voice, like I mean, he it, it's really just the voice. I've seen he was in something recently replayed, like a good guy. And it really fucked with my head because it's like, oh, isn't Michael <laughs> Wincott always the bad guy? Because he just yeah. has that, like he like he gets up in the morning and he smokes like ten packs of cigarettes right. and then gargles with gravel. Apparently, he's in Jordan Peele's new movie, uh, Nope, oh, which yeah. I think uh, opened today or yesterday. Well, I'm I haven't seen it, it yet, tomorrow. but uh, apparently, I'm noping to go see it tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it shouldn't have got us started on Michael Wincott because, yeah, that guy's a legend. Again, in strange Well, he, I, I, I was thinking about putting him in, in this category, but I, I thought, oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, he – I mean, we are, we, we are getting sidetracked. Michael Wincott has just that quality where, again, there's so many of these actors we talk about, like, oh, they could be leading men. Like, he's a handsome dude, Michael He Wincott. is, yeah. But there is an essential danger to him that I think, like, he's – it's 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 um it's almost like subconscious where you look mm. at him and you're like oh I don't know I could trust him as a good guy I, I'm reading um uh, the the Mad Max uh, Fury Road the oh yeah the, the blood and chrome one like, yeah yeah that's right and um, George Miller talks about the ca- the casting yeah it's fantastic uh, amazing that, that film got made <laughs> like I mean, the first I'm about halfway through it it's like it's in, it's amazing that didn't everyone just didn't just give up but talking about the casting of Tom Hardy. And, you know, George's the similarities you saw between Tom and Mel, mm. which is this kind of inherent, I think he describes them as almost like caged animals. Like yeah. there is this sort of real animal quality, which, you know, has proven true with Mel. And you can totally get it with Tom Hardy. And I think Michael Wincott is not as unstable as those two, but there is just the, there's a seething kind of like, I don't oh, know, yeah. anger or bad guy underneath, which I think in The Crow, they nail really, really well. Yeah, same in Strange Days, same in Prince of Thieves, even that god-awful yes. Three Musketeers from the early 90s with Charlie Sheen yes. and Kiefer Sutherland. I think he's rocking an eye patch in that and just like, oh, why isn't the whole movie about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's fantastic. I love Michael Wincott. But someone else I love is David Patrick Kelly, um, yeah. who uh, he was in the aforementioned Dreamscape, playing a, an absolute psycho with the great psycho name of Tommy Ray Glattman. <laughs> who can um is dreamscape the same film with christopher Plummer? that's the one with christopher Plummer. yeah i mean yeah right yeah yeah, right, yeah there's yeah. uh secret experiments going on at some college where uh max von sydow is uh developing some technology that needs you know psychics 
with it as well that you can go into people's dreams and sort of interact with them and you know if you're having you know massive nightmares then you know in comes dennis quaid to sort it out except they send in david patrick kelly who then kills you in your dream so um (laughs) but he he just plays like a really going back to the um the sort of the core tenet of our discussion today sleazy guys tommy ray gatton is a sleaze i mean he, the first time he meets Dennis Quaid, he sort of rocks into his room, tries on his leather jacket without asking him to says, I bet I could get a lot of gash in a jacket like this. <laughs> like, Dude, really? Dude. <laughs> but then he does the same uh, in, he's Sully in Commando opposite Schwarzenegger. You know, oh, that's right. Yeah, he's the too. one. And, um, you know, even before he's doing all this, you know, villainous shit to Schwarzenegger, he's just sort of sleezing around the airport trying to pick up Ray Dawn Chong after she's got off her flight. And when she turns him down, he's just like, you fucking whore. It's like, yeah, yeah this guy's well, just bad so news. <laughs> so why he's so good in Twin Peaks is he's kind of like the, the you know, just the kind of mooching brother who's always yeah. looking for deals, always looking to make money and stuff. And you're right, he's just got this inherent kind of untrustworthiness to him he reminds me a little bit i get him confused sometimes with you know um uh he's jack nicholson's mate tracy walter oh yeah from repo man tim burton's yeah yeah yeah, that's right he's just there's a similar kind of weaselly little bit about the two of them yeah it's like how do you function in society you know (laughs) (laughs) so yeah david patrick kelly but um yeah an a-grade sleaze and seemingly a very nice fellow i was watching some behind the scenes footage of twin peaks and there was him and another actor and dpk you want to you you can call bill fickner bill fickner i'm going to call david patrick Kelly dpk DPK, um, i like it he was just uh there were two actors in the city and he had a little mandolin not a guitar mandolin and they just came with this lovely tune as they collaborate i'm like didn't expect that from you dave nice work <laughs> i wonder i'd be really interested to know like you know, these actors that we've talked about, like what their price tag is. Like they're prolific, clearly. Yeah. Like I'm just looking at David Patrick DPK's, <laughs> I didn't, you know, he does like four or five projects a year, film and TV. Yeah, you'd think like, they'd I be above if, scale, right? You'd think they you'd definitely be above scale, but I'm just wondering like, like does a director or does a producer or a production, do they value what this person mm. brings? So it's like, hey, let's just make sure we've got a bit of money. We need a good villain or we need a good like character actor in this role. So let's yeah, let's not We only need we need him for a week or we need him for four days. Let's put yeah. aside twenty, thirty K, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, just to pay them well, because I would hate yeah. to think that David Patrick like can't pay his mortgage yeah. or something because <laughs> he deserves it. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, I don't know if we—I don't know if you want to close out on that, but um, well, we can wind it up. Yeah, you got something for? Oh me? no, 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 no! I mean, I'm happy to keep talking, but the thing of it is, when I was talking about magazines before, and I mentioned film comment, one of the articles yeah. that I found, uh, and I'm actually holding it in my hot little hand now, it's called "The Lives of Supporting Players." It's written by the, a great film writer named David Thompson, and it's this first of all a fantastic article in praise of supporting actors which oh, yeah. they're my guys. I love them. I mean, I love stars, but supporting actors are just, oh man, you came in and you just, as I said, made a meal of it. Fantastic. Yeah. But then there's this huge list of, and they're little sort of capsule bios slash appreciations of all these, um, all these actors. And this is like maybe in 88 or 89 that I bought this magazine. But they're talking yeah. about guys like, and oh, guys and girls, like say Bonnie Bedelia, who, you know, yes. had, uh, came ba- come back in Die Hard, but she had a big career Die before Hard. that. Uh, who else? And all this is also very early in these guys' careers, but then they went on to things a bit later. They're talking about Michael Gambon, of course, went on to be Dumbledore. But uh, who else? The late, great Fred Ward, uh, rates are mentioned mainly. Um, speaking Mamie Blues, yeah, David Strathern, fantastic actor. Tom Waits, rates are mentioned because, of course, he's a he's got a wonderful side hustle as um, you know, as as an actor, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, but one of my favorites, and this, this guy could have easily fit into sleazebag actors is a guy named Nicholas Worth. Um, now he's a big stocky ball dude, not unlike yours truly. Um, have you seen, you've seen dark man, of course, Charlie. Yes. Yeah. He's the one who, um, 
he's the bald guy that Liam Neeson makes the first face and he steals the money and then he gets thrown out the window by Larry Drake. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 That's, they, he's one of those, oh, that guy faces. He, he's a that guy. They've written like six paragraphs on him, but it closes out with... Um, uh, it closes out with one of my favourite lines of writing of film criticism of all time. Worth is more than the actor's actor. He's the psychopath psychopath. <laughs> put it on my oh, put it on my tombstone. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's a and that's a good way to go out, uh, guy. Thank you so much for coming back into the video store. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Robert Guy Davis. And if and you want to listen, four finger discount. Yeah, if you want to listen to these dulcet tones a little more, um, the show was called Four Finger Discount and part of the Four Finger Discount net, uh, Network. Also has shows on The Simpsons, Seinfeld, Friends, South Park. Um, doing a few film reviews myself on a show called The Sidetrack, uh, which is going to be more nerdy shit like I've talked about today. So if you couldn't get enough of it today, track me down there. <laughs> yeah. Get some uh, there. Yeah, just... Uh, I'm I'm trying to get as many podcasts going as uh, as Charlie Clawson, but you know I, I, <laughs> I don't rate my chances because he's the hardest working man in show business. I'll put links all in the episode description below. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Guy Davis. Mm-hmm.